Hi everyone, um, my name is Dr. Louisa Sun. Uh, I'm an infectious diseases uh, junior consultant at NUHS. And um, today I have with me here Prof. Dale Fisher, who everyone is very familiar with. Um, and like Prof. Dale, I myself have actually been very involved in um, COVID-19 um, in the community as well as the hospital. And uh, we'll just have Prof. Dale Fisher today answer some uh, questions that you all have sent in. So we'll dive straight in. The first question we've received is, um, when and how is it safe to lift restrictions and what will life look like after that? Thanks, Louisa, and hi, everyone. This is uh, the million dollar question at the moment, isn't it, Louisa? How, how do we yeah. do this? Uh, no one has successfully done it yet. Everyone's shown that they can lock down and they can reduce transmissions significantly. Uh, but obviously this is not sustainable in terms of economics or, or cultural or social values that are, that are dear to us. So we have to work out how to lift. We, we know one thing for sure, and that is we need to do it gradually. Uh, no one wants to go back into the most extreme forms of lockdown, which you've seen in, in like Italy and New York and obviously Wuhan. So... Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? Well, I think it's a mixture of looking at, at what's important to the community uh, and what's important economically, what's important socially and culturally, and how do we make that safe? So Iran has started reintroducing Friday prayers. Uh, Australia is talking a lot about sport. Uh, everyone, of course, is talking about economy and there's obviously pressure in Singapore to, to try and get people back to work um, because it, it, it does hurt and, and people are losing their jobs around the world. So how does life look? I, I think it's just going to be very gradual. I think we know we, know we need the, the testing. We know we need isolation of cases. We need contact tracing and quarantine. But that's obviously not enough. Singapore was very good at that before, before we had more cases. But obviously, we need some degree of, of social restriction. Uh, so this means social distancing, limiting crowds. Uh, lots, if you're sick, uh, present for a test. Uh, hand washing. Uh, if you can't social distance, then mask wearing is obviously important because of the pre-symptomatic spread. Um, but I think many of the things can be lifted safely, especially now that we've got so few cases. For instance, I'd like to see mask wearing uh, when you're outside uh, and not near anybody else. I think it would be quite safe to, to remove that one. But it's going to have to be be very gradual steps. And while... COVID transmission is a threat, we will never be back to completely normal as we saw before. Mm, okay. Um, that's one of my own questions, actually. Um, is there something, uh, one major uh, event, uh, for example, treatment or vaccination that you think will be the, the one major thing that can end, you know, a lot of these restrictions? So a treatment or a vaccine as you'd know, we're unlikely to find a miracle treatment. We are likely to find antivirals or immunosuppressants or, or something that can uh, reduce mortality. 
but it's 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 very unlikely we're going to find something that has got a hundred percent cure and nobody dies. Obviously, if nobody died, then it wouldn't matter. We we would let it transmit yeah. freely because we know we can just transmit. Uh, we can just uh, treat people. Um, that's one form of treatment. Another one would be prevention. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there a drug people could take every day or every week so that you didn't get disease? Yeah, similar to uh, anti-malarial prophylaxis, for instance, preventing malaria when you go to a, an area like that. Is there a drug like that that's going to appear? That, that would be very, very good as well. Um, I think in all likelihood, we're waiting for a vaccine. Uh, but even a vaccine is not going to be 100%. Uh, we, we know we have uh, vaccines for, for, for measles and chickenpox and things like this, but, uh, but we still get outbreaks of, of these. So it's never going to be 100%, but I think clearly a vaccine would be, would be a game changer. Um, and Prof, you mentioned something that kind of leads nicely into the next question. Um, we mentioned that um, if uh, the death rate wasn't so high, or the mortality rate, um, we'd just let it transmit in the community. So I think a lot of people's question is to do with the actual mortality. Why are some groups much more affected than others? Uh, for example, the elderly, obese, um, whether there's some ethnicity uh, or pre uh, people with pre-existing illness? So we knew that right from the outset, the, when we were in the, uh, the, uh, the mission to China in mid-February, this was already very clear information that the older you were, the greater the risk. So children mm -hmm. uh, hardly get any symptoms. Uh, death is extremely rare. They, they didn't even have one in China. Um, and that was with, uh, with around 80,000 cases. Uh, so, so they get either asymptomatic disease or very mild disease. Whereas the elderly, if you're over 80, the, uh, the mortality might be 15% 15, 15 or more. We knew that. Uh, even 40 year olds, they might have maybe a 0.2% mortality. So even a, a thousand 40 year olds, uh, you know, 40 to 49 year olds will have a very low mortality. And this is obviously very concerning when you start to get large numbers of people as as we're seeing in Singapore, but also as we saw overseas. Uh, I remember the, uh, uh, some press reports from, from Italy were saying, I don't understand, this is supposed to be an elderly person's disease, but I'm seeing you know, 30, 40, 50 year olds here on ventilators. And that is what you do see when you get large numbers of people, even the percentages being low, you'll start to see people like that with large numbers. Uh, so we know about age, uh, we, don't, we don't really know why. Is it the, the it's it's going to be an immune response type thing? Um, you know, either a a, a weaker uh, immune system as you get older, or or maybe something more specific in terms of uh, cytokine response. Uh, we also know the same thing with pre-existing illness and heart disease, lung disease, um, diabetes. Uh, the uh, things like this um, hypertension, interestingly. So we we know that people with pre-existing conditions are, are more vulnerable to a to a worse outcome. Uh, 
race, I'm not really sure. I, I do believe socioeconomic groups are more lower socioeconomic groups are more more vulnerable. Uh, they internationally they've got poorer access to 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 health supports. They'll they'll present later. Um, we, we believe in Singapore that one of our secrets to success is that we actually uh, see all our patients that that have COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and by and large, see them all every day. Every patient getting seen by a doctor every day, if not every every two days, but but particularly around that trouble period, which is the the second week of of the illness, uh, we keep them hydrated. We keep them uh, often with with prophylactic uh, blood thinners. So so we know uh, that we can offer something early on, and and as well as that, we're a lot of treatment trials, which which may be helping, uh, particularly if we favour those that are that are more at risk of deterioration. Uh, I hope I answered the question, Louisa. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, um, and this actually also leads into one of the next questions that was asked: is that what techniques exist to reduce the mortality rate, and what is being worked on? I think we touched on uh, several of these, but is there anything else in particular that can help? Uh, to reduce the mortality rate. Yeah, prevention. That that won't prevent the that mm-hmm. won't reduce the mortality rate, but it'll prevent the mortality. Um, stopping the spread of disease is is the number one priority. You've heard um, the director general come on on TV in his his reports. Uh, I think every day. Uh, continue to contain. Don't give up. No matter what stage you're in, whether you're Italy or Germany or New York, Wuhan, just, just don't give up. The best way to save lives is to prevent spread. So I, this, this, this continues. Uh, we know we can prevent spread and preventing spread saves lives. So I would say that's the main thing. The, the, other, the other big thing is not letting your health system get overwhelmed which is obviously linked to, to containing the disease. We know once you obviously, once all your, your health workers are, are exhausted, once you're out of beds, once you're out of ventilators in some countries where you're out of oxygen, um, the oxygen cylinders have all been, uh, all been emptied in some countries and they're having troubles with supplies. Um, what, a, what a terrible thing just because uh, you're out of oxygen supplies that that you end up dying and you could die of a heart attack because your oxygen levels gone low. So, so, you know, not, not overwhelming the health system mm. is, is critical. Uh, so yeah, that, that'd be my, my two things. The, the other techniques I think we've, mm-hmm. we've touched on the, the intensive care doctors uh, have got some, some other ideas in terms of, you know, ventilator settings and things like that. I, but you may know more about, that than me, Louisa. Um, do you do you know of anything else that is being used that could work? Um, for the ICU wise, um, what I've seen or what I've heard a lot of discussion about is you're right. Uh, one is the ventilator technique, and uh, people are even talking about uh, this technique called awake proning, and that is something to try in a very specific uh, subset of suitable patients to. Um, 
not intubate them and instead um, they kind of flip them on their tummy and they do this technique called proning and this is to increase the oxygen levels in parts of the lung. Yep. So um, I must admit I'm, I'm not sure of what the exact outcomes of those were but I know that that was something that was being tried to also try and um, uh, save the ventilators for those who really need it. Yeah, I do remember that conversation actually. It was, uh, I, I think the, the, the terms were as soon as we stop flipping the patient, the oxygen levels go down. So, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting what we're, what we're learning in terms of techniques. But you can see that sort of individual care, which we can still, still give in, in Singapore and, yes. and other countries where, where we're not overwhelmed. We're, we're not just... Uh, trying to put out a bushfire, we can actually provide individual care. I think there's there's still less than 30 people on, on ventilators in the whole of mm -hmm. Singapore. So so this is uh, this allows us to to reduce mortality that way. Yeah, and um, yes, that's very important. I think one thing that I've been seeing across all the hospitals as well, because our hospital healthcare system is not so overwhelmed, is that once a patient is um, identified to have any signs of deterioration, uh, very early on, they can actually go to a high dependency or even ICU to be monitored. And so the responses are much faster for when they eventually do deteriorate further. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, well, well said. Um, okay, so there's one um, other question that's kind of related, I suppose, to reducing um, mortality or prevention even, is that um, there are some small studies that have popped up in the last week or so um, that have mentioned vitamin D as um, a very important preventer or a very important um, uh, marker in actually um, preventing deterioration or preventing mortality. So a small ICU study has found that uh, uh, patients in their ICU have actually uh, marked vitamin D deficiency, whereas the patients in general ward um, have sufficient levels of vitamin D. Um, I haven't heard anything beyond um, these two small studies and they are not peer reviewed yet, which means anything that uh, we read from these studies are actually to be taken uh, with uh, a significant amount of caution into um, kind of interpreting them and uh, using them for uh, the larger population. But I wonder whether, Prof, you've heard anything about this and what your thoughts are. Yeah, thanks, Louisa. I, I think you've answered your own, your own question. It's, uh, <laughs> okay. it's, uh, it, it's exactly right. Uh, it shows, so medical publications have changed this year. Uh, we as you know, normally go through a very rigorous process of, of submitting, uh, peer review, uh, comes back to the authors, back to the editors, back to the peer reviewers. And as you know, this can take months to, to, mm -hmm. get, uh, to get information through. Now, as, as part of this response, uh, there's a lot of uh, pressure, appropriate pressure, to get, uh, to get information out quickly. Uh, WHO was certainly asking for any anyone that was submitting anything about COVID, please send it to them because they wanted to look for those early early nuggets that could be particularly useful. And mm -hmm. as you've rightly said, you can go on, go online and and find these pre-print articles, and and they have to be uh, reviewed for what they are. That they haven't been peer-reviewed. It's just someone doing a submission. They could be the absolute nuggets we want to know about early, 
or they could be premature and or, or they could be wrong so mm. we've we've seen this already a number of times uh, excitement over hydroxychloroquine excitement yeah. over remdesivir uh, and and that's because people are so desperate to 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 find answers so i i don't uh, i don't I, i'm glad such access to early information exists but it's like we have to become uh, reviewers of every article already, and, and indeed, this is this is actually part part of the reasons they justify uh, preprint is that they're getting feedback from people already, uh, uh, rather than the formal reviewers. So, so they're getting thousands of reviews instead of just the usual two or three. So, so in terms of vitamin D, no, I, I don't know anything else. Um, I, I'm I wouldn't help hold out a lot of hope for for this but uh but nonetheless i'm not not writing anything off um mm -hmm. uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm still traditionally looking towards the antivirals and uh and maybe immunosuppressants in in late stage disease mm -hmm. okay and um the last question i think is also something that is keeping the research world abuzz at the moment um and all throughout this uh uh, pandemic is what is happening with the vaccines at the moment so we're on we're on target basically some people say how much longer and mm -hmm. and the timetable hasn't really changed it, even even back in January February when people were talking about vaccines and, and the early development was taking place um, people said that by by April we should have some phase one trials coming through so, mm -hmm. so these are these are trials which are really first in human. Uh, we do them in in small numbers, largely looking for safety. Of naturally, uh, vaccines, while on one hand they hold hold the hope to returning to normality, there's been many uh, examples of of vaccines being introduced in the past that have caused a lot of problems. So we need to know that it's safe and effective before it can be released. It's unlikely, statistically, it's unlikely that the first vaccine that's tried will be safe and effective. If we get lucky, then that might push push the timetable ahead a bit. But, uh, but at the moment, there's over 100 vaccine candidates. Um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe a, do a dozen are at the, the phase one level. Um, and people are thinking that the most likely time would be second half of next year uh, mm -hmm. if we get lucky it could be earlier or if you're uh, in some camps you could argue that uh, getting a vaccine is not even guaranteed anyway um, mm -hmm. so so that will obviously change the timetable a lot into to how we want to deal with this virus mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So um, I think we've answered all the questions that we've got uh, for this round. Um, I'd like to thank Prof. Dale Fisher very much for his time with us today. And um, if you ha guys have any other questions, we hope that to continue uh, to encourage you to continue uh, submitting them. And hopefully we can answer as many questions as we can over the coming few weeks. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Louisa. I think uh, this has been good and I'd be delighted to to do this with you again next week if uh, if people find it helpful basically that's 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 why we do this we do this so that uh, 
we can get accurate information out to the uh, to the community. So so thank you, Louisa, and and let's sign off. Bye, everybody. <laughs>